I'm your host, Olivia, and this is Troubled Minds. Troubled Minds is a brand new podcast designed to give you a look into the psychology behind America's most infamous. If you have any questions, concerns, feedback, or requests, you can go ahead and contact me at troubledmindsthepodcast at gmail.com. If you're looking to find my sources, you can visit the links in the description. I'm going to provide a trigger warning for discussion of violent events and a brief mention of sexual violence. Welcome to episode two, Cult Culture. I'm sure that you probably already know the name Charles Manson, conspirator in the Manson murders, cult leader of The Family, and creator of the concept Helter Skelter, a fictional race war inspired by the lyrics of a Beatles song. In Cincinnati, Ohio, Charles Manson, or Charles Maddox at the time, was born to a single teen mother in November of 1934. It is assumed that he never knew his father. Manson's childhood was heavily affected by his mother's alcoholism, one instance including his uncle having to find him and bring him home after his mother sold him to a waitress in exchange for beer. In 1939, Manson's mother and uncle were sent to prison for armed robbery, leading to his relocation to McMechan, West Virginia. In McMechan, Charles lived with an aunt and uncle until his mother was released five years later, just for her to send him to Gibbalt School for Boys in another five years. Manson, unhappy, escaped from the school and returned to his mother, but his mother did not want him. Manson's criminal history began with a string of petty crimes and armed robberies, putting him in multiple juvenile centers and boys' schools over time. Manson claims that he was abused both physically and sexually in these schools and facilities. Charles entered the Natural Bridge Honors Camp in 1951, but was transferred to a federal reformatory in Virginia after a violent sexual attack on another inmate. Manson was then transferred again after another series of incidents, but was released on parole in 1954. After his release, Manson actually got married to a Rosalie Willis, which I had never heard about until I started researching for this podcast. While married, he stole automobiles for a living, and Rosalie became pregnant. The couple moved to Los Angeles, where Manson was sent to prison after being caught with a stolen car. Although Manson had multiple chances at parole, his lack of patience prevented him from ever receiving it. His wife lived with his mother for a period of time during his imprisonment and gave birth to Charles Jr., but soon left to live with another guy. Rosalie divorced him several years later when he was finally released on parole. However, Manson was quickly drawn back into marriage by a woman named Leona, who testified on his behalf, telling the court that she would marry him if given the opportunity after he was put on trial for forging a U.S. Treasury check. Manson prostituted her and another woman in New Mexico, which led to a long series of events, but most notably, his arrest, along with many transfers and his divorce from Leona. At this point, Manson is 32, and he has spent more than half of his life in institutions and facilities. In 1967, Manson is released from prison. This is when the family begins. Manson moved to Berkeley, where he met and moved in with recent college graduate and one of the first family members, Mary Brunner. He invited many other women into the household, creating his first set of followers. Manson identified with the Church of Scientology after learning some information about it during his prison time, and he taught it to his followers. Manson took a few of his most devoted followers traveling in a renovated school bus. 
While traveling, they gathered more members to add to the family. The family was influenced by Manson's religious teachings, with most ideas originating from pop culture, science fiction, the occult, and a variety of other inspirations. Dennis Wilson, a member of the Beach Boys, actually invited two women from the family over to his house. Now, Wilson did not know anything about the family at the time. While he was out, the women invited Manson, along with about a dozen other female family members, into Wilson's house. If you don't feel like things are weird enough, just hold on. They get weirder. Wilson comes home to see Manson standing out front. Wilson, as any normal person would be, is super freaked out by this. To show Wilson that he comes in peace, Manson gets on the ground and starts kissing Wilson's feet. Manson and the women live in Wilson's house for an extended period of time, and Wilson actually recorded music with Manson, which is available today. The family moved out of Wilson's house and onto a ranch owned by an elderly man named George Spawn. The Mansons prostituted the young women to Spawn in exchange for free living on Wilson's land. After establishing most of his group at the ranch, Manson distributed the family among multiple ranches in Death Valley. One of the biggest misconceptions about the family is that there were only nine or ten members. The members that were recognized in the media after the murders actually only made up a small portion of the family. The family really gained momentum in the late 60s and early 70s, right after the civil rights movement. This leads into Manson's most popular teaching, the fictional race war Helter Skelter. Manson was known to have a big infatuation with the Beatles, including the Beatles and many of his teachings. Manson prophesied an event in which black people would lead an uprising against white people, something he claimed was foretold in the song Helter Skelter by the Beatles. Manson convinced the family that the song was created for them, and it was made to prepare the family for Helter Skelter so they could protect themselves. Manson told the family that when this happened, they would take shelter in an underground city underneath Death Valley. Manson moved the family to a new headquarters that he called the Yellow Submarine and prepared them for an oncoming disaster. The family's original plan was to create an album with the content centering around the concept of Helter Skelter. However, the album fell through because the producer Manson had a connection to, Terry Melcher, was not interested in their album. The family had gotten themselves into a situation with a young man named Bernard Crow. Tex, a family member nicknamed for his Texan accent, had tricked Crow into getting money for the family after being tasked to find money by Manson. But when Crow realized that he was being conned, he threatened the family. Manson went out and shot Crow, then decided the group needed to prepare themselves because of his wrongfully assumed fear that Crow was involved in the civil rights organization, the Black Panthers. In an attempt to move the group for protection against the completely unaware and very uninvolved Black Panthers, Manson sent three of the family members, Mary Brunner, Suzanne Atkins, and Bobby Bosole, to demand money from Gary Hinman. When Hinman did not turn the money over, the family held him hostage for two days, eventually ending in the family stabbing Hinman to death. The family wrote Political Piggy in blood and drew a panther paw on the wall in order to imitate the Black Panthers. Only 12 days later, Bosole was arrested in Hinman's car. Manson took Bosole's arrest as a sign and announced to the family that Helter Skelter had arrived. Manson decided that Helter Skelter needed a boost from the family in order to begin, so he told Tex, Suzanne Atkins, Linda Kasabian, and Patricia Krenwinkel to go to the previous house that Terry Melcher owned, the producer who refused their music, and murder its inhabitants. Terry Melcher had moved out several years prior, and now pregnant actress Sharon Tate was hosting four friends in the house the night of the murders, Abigail Folger, Wojciech Frykowski, and Jay Sebring. 
In the words of Manson, the family members were supposed to, quote, destroy everyone in it as gruesome as you can, unquote. The four members approached the Tate residence, but ran into visitor, 18-year-old Stephen Parent. Poor Parent begged for his life, but Tex slashed and shot him outside. Tex, Atkins, and Krenwinkel entered the house through a window while Kasabian stood as a lookout outside. This is where the details and the timeline get a bit fuzzy due to conflicting stories from different family members in court. Sebring and Tate were tied together, but when Sebring retaliated on behalf of pregnant Tate, he was shot and stabbed. Frykowski managed to escape his bondage and attempt to run, but Atkins caught him and stabbed him. Frykowski then managed to push his way through, but was stopped and attacked by Tex, who killed him outside. It was complete chaos. Family member Kasabian was scared by the sounds coming from the house and attempted to stop the murders by telling Atkins that someone was coming, but she failed. Folger was chased by Krenwinkle through the house and stabbed, and Tate was the last one in the household, but Atkins stabbed her, killing both her and her unborn baby. The family left the word pig on the front door before leaving. The next day, the four family members from the Tate murders, along with members Steve Grogan, Leslie Van Houten, and none other than Charles Manson himself, arrived at the LaBianca couple home. Then again, the details on this murder are a bit unclear due to conflicting stories. Manson supposedly entered the household first and tied the inhabitants up, then letting the rest of the family members into the house. Tex began the murders by stabbing Lena LaBianca to death, and when he was dead, Tex carved the word war onto his stomach. Manson required every family member to stab Rosemary LaBianca in order to make sure that every person had participated in the crime. Cren Wrinkle wrote, Rise, Death to Pigs, and Helter Skelter on the walls while Manson drove Kasabian and two others to another apartment where they could commit another murder. Kasabian, scared, purposefully alerted a stranger so the group would have to leave. The Manson family was investigated for a string of other crimes, leading investigators to notice stolen vehicles and that Bosole's girlfriend was a part of the Manson family. Her conversations with detectives ultimately put the family at the top of the suspect list for both the LaBianca murders and the Tate murders. Eventually, the LAPD had Tex, Kasabian, Krenwinkel, Atkins, Van Houten, and Manson in custody. While in custody, the family altered their appearance multiple times to make statements, including carving an X onto their foreheads and shaving all of their hair off. Van Houten, Manson, Tex, Krenwinkel, and Atkins were put on trial for the Tate and LaBianca murders. Kasabian was used as a witness in the case against them in exchange for immunity. Other witnesses faced danger from free family members. One witness was poisoned with LSD, and another witness was injured in a fire that was believed to be set by a family member. All defendants were declared guilty. Now that you know the what, it's time to talk about the why. There are a few important characteristics of cults that allow for brainwashing as intense as the brainwashing that had to occur for the Manson case to be successful that would have had to be included. As cliche as this sounds, everything does come back to the leader. Let's talk about Manson for a second. Manson was marked as aggressively antisocial while in an institution, today meaning that he has antisocial personality disorder. Now, with the childhood that he experienced, the idea that he has a personality disorder is very likely. Manson described only two experiences where he found genuine happiness, the first being when his mom hugged him for the first time after being released from prison, and the second being during his first marriage to Rosalie Willis. Manson spent so much time in and out of prisons as a young adult that he became accustomed to prison life. Before his last prison release in 1967, he actually asked if he could stay in prison. 
Prison life is very structured and living in a prison for such a long period of time can make it very difficult to lead a normal life on your own. Manson's communal lifestyle that he spent with the family was very similar to the lifestyle that he had experienced in prison, which gave him an advantage in a cult setting. Manson's IQ was tested for the first time when he was a teenager in a facility, and he only received a score of 109, but later he retested and received a score of 121. He was also entirely illiterate as a young teenager. Manson's IQ struggles really make his ability to completely brainwash a group of people surprising. Interestingly, Manson completely rejects the idea that he brainwashed anyone. While the entire story is confusing to a degree because of the mass amounts of conflicting stories, Manson's testimony particularly makes the situation very complicated. Manson's narrative directly contradicts the stories of other family members captured. Manson claimed that most of the illegal occurrences were not influenced by him, let alone ordered by him. Manson claimed that Beausoleil's decision to hold Hinman hostage was not based on a request from Manson, but instead was because of his own altercation with Hinman after Beausoleil asked Hinman for a refund on drugs he had previously bought from Hinman. Manson claims that he had just came to help after he heard that things had gone south between the two of them and that Beausoleil stabbed him to death out of fear that Hinman would call the police. Manson then said that the Tate murder was just an idea created by another family member, with the goal being to create a copycat murder to steer the Hinman investigation away from the family. Manson claimed that he did not coordinate anything, but instead just went along with the family's plan. In order to understand how Manson orchestrated an entire group of people to murder for his fabricated cause, it's important to understand the basics of cults. Cults are entirely developed around the concept of dependency. Cult leaders are successful in recruiting members who are already insecure in some part of their life. Cults offer a sense of security and community that make it very difficult to leave. Once members are drawn in, they are slowly fed information. The cult community is so close that people don't want to doubt the information they are being given because it would mean they would have to doubt their happiness and stability within the community. Cults isolate their members from the outside world, putting the people on the inside in the situation where they feel they will lose everything if they question the ideals of the cult. This essentially gives the cult leader complete control over every aspect of the cult. The cult leader then can implement their own agenda because the cult members are put into a position where their entire lives depend on the cult. You can see this tactic of isolation used in the family with the way that Manson moved the family around to different locations. The members began traveling in a van, then they moved to Dennis Wilson's house, then they moved to a ranch in the middle of Death Valley. Manson's followers were constantly cut off from their friends and family geographically, and then eventually their only sense of community came from within each other. Many of Manson's followers had romantic and sexual relationships with one another, and many of them only held friendships and any sort of relationships within the group. Manson's widely accepted idea that the family was specially chosen to survive helter-skelter together reinforced the fear that the family only had each other. I also think that setting and time played a large role in Manson's success. The family came about when hippie culture came about. Free thinking and free love were important aspects of pop culture, and a large majority of the family was made of young adults. The family offered people the opportunity to pursue the ultimate free lifestyle, specifically open love and sex, drugs, and a new spiritual concept. If the family had been born during a different time period, I doubt it would have been as successful. Among the people that Manson had convinced to murder on his behalf, it is very difficult to distinguish the difference between people with mental disorders that have always been capable of murder and people who simply murdered out of fear induced by the ideals that Manson had set in place. However, it is important to note that members of Manson's cult were so loyal to him that the convicted members' attorneys were too afraid to let them testify out of fear that they may take responsibility for Manson to protect him. 
Many of these members were willing to physically harm themselves and throw their lives away for Manson, so it is very possible that all of Manson's followers were just operating under his influence and not of their own sociopathy. While the victims may have died by the family's hands, Manson was the true murderer. Thanks for listening to Episode 2, Cult Culture. Please make sure to contact me at troubledmindsthepodcast at gmail.com if you have any feedback, questions, concerns, or requests. See you then.